Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james, netsuite.com slash james netsuite.com slash james two guys drove to work neither guy wore a seatbelt one guy got a ticket one guy didn't the same two guys drove home one guy wore a seatbelt one guy didn't One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Again, I think... If I would have been felt seen and heard in the moments when I was younger and someone just sat with me and looked at me and just listened to me, it's like I felt the most love and appreciation and belonging. And I think Brene Brown talks about, you know, we all just want to feel like we belong. I think also it's like, who am I in the world? Am I a course creator or am I a host facilitator and a curator of hearts? I used to be way worse probably in my early 20s where I was like, I always needed to please people. And I've learned that I can't please everyone and I need to have boundaries as well because boundaries create healthy, healthier emotions for me. Like what's an example where you actually created boundaries where previously you wouldn't? All right, Lewis House, welcome back to the James Alvarez <laughs> Show. We're here, man. How many times have you been on there? Like you've been on like four or five times. I think three, right? This is the fourth? Well, I remember one I time, three. well, first off, we did one when we first met, like way back, I can't even remember. And then we did one 
you were staying downtown somewhere. We just did a back and forth uh, uh, podcast. And then we did, so yeah, maybe it's the third, maybe this is the fourth. This is the fourth. And we've, we've done like three where we both went on the same, we just did like a, a two hour interview. Yeah. And just kept rolling. Yeah. We, we've done a bunch of those. Yeah. Oh. So, and, and as we mentioned on your podcast, we met at this conference where we were both speaking and it was like a contest. And you, you and right from the beginning, you kind of had this arc of the hero sort of story. Yeah, like yeah. you were an athlete, you got injured, uh, you didn't know what to do with your life. You were living on your sister's couch, and then and we talked about this in the very first time. Like you, you started at first. You got obsessed with LinkedIn, and then you, you always have this ability of making things meta. So instead of you became an expert at LinkedIn, but then you invited everyone else that you were connected with to come hang out and and yeah. connect, and then you started teaching courses or selling courses yes. or coaching on LinkedIn, and so you always made everything meta. Then. Expanding that, really, you started doing a podcast, connecting with people, mm -hmm. and so you're always about connection, about networking. I was talking to the people who work with you yeah. earlier, and they said, um, um, uh, you know, you're, they named some companies that oh, Lewis knows them, and Lewis gets in, and he, they named like huge, you know, one of the top three or four major companies, and they said that's Lewis's superpower. He can he connects, he networks, he gets it everywhere. What I'm before we get into like the the meat of what I want to talk about, <laughs> I want to know for myself what, how can I network better? Like I'm just, I don't really like calling people. I don't return calls. I was just gonna say like text people because yeah. I don't even know if I I try to text you every now and then, and I don't even know if it goes to like some spam folder at an email or if it's your phone or if it's a flip phone. I don't even know. And I might so not. I, think, I might not know it's you because I have no contact not. list. I feel like you always change a new. You have to say you, this is Lewis. <laughs> exactly. I feel like you always change a new phone number. So I'm like, I never even know. You always get back on email really fast. Yeah, yeah. Email. But it's like for me, I think uh, it's funny. I I sent a. I don't want to name drop, but I was I was talking with um, a extremely well known, uh, kind of like royalty type of individual, an older older individual. And I was, I built a relationship with this person and we connected over maybe a year. And I feel like you're talking about like the king of Siam no, or something. No, but there's someone who's, I just don't want to name drop it, but, and I remember we would text every now and then, and then I just, and I'd see this person in, uh, in person every now and then. And then one day I was just like, I just want to send them a video note. So I took on my phone, I took a video and I just said a couple of things that I really appreciated about them that I saw them do lately. They posted something online. I was like, I really appreciate that, and I just appreciate our friendship. That was simple, but it was a video that I sent to this person, and they sent me a video back. They were just like, no one's ever sent me a video like saying anything like this. Thank you so much. Like, I'm really appreciative of it. Like, let's connect soon. And so it was just a little small thing, it, and it's what I do naturally. I just like to reach out to people and check in on them and say hi and. Mm -hmm. If I see something online, you know, it's interesting, my dad, I think we pick up things from our parents a lot, whether we like it or not. My dad did this, this is the first time I'm actually remembering that my dad did this. He would take newspaper clippings from the local Delaware, Ohio uh, newspaper, and he would send it to his clients when he saw his clients in the news or his clients' kids in sports. He would take it out of the sports section, cut it up, and write a note on it like acknowledging like, oh, I just saw your kid scored like 10 points in the basketball game and here was the clipping in the newspaper, here it is. 
he was really thoughtful about that. And this is actually the first time I think about it. But that's just what I do out of, I don't know, human nature, I guess. Maybe it's because I saw my dad doing it. I mirrored that. Yeah, and now, as, and, I didn't as, realize it until now. I mean, last night, we, we, we all went to the premiere of your excellent movie, Chasing Greatness, and it kind of followed your story. And, and plus, there was clips from all your, many of your podcasts and a lot of the inspiration you've learned, a lot of the inspiration you've given, the, the stories you have revealed along the way. But it was really touching to me, the relationship with you and your dad. Like, your dad would show up to your games and just he was so proud of you and he would take photos of every game. Like, were there any other dads doing that? Did you feel he embarrassed was, your dad was doing I did it? feel embarrassed at times because he was always in the corner of the field or in the corner of the basketball court and just like with this long camera lens. And he was like an amateur photographer. He wasn't like a pro, but he loved it. And he was just always in the action. And sometimes, and he'd be yelling too. He'd be like, let's go, you know, screaming and taking photos. So there's moments of like, that's awesome. And there's other moments of kind of embarrassment, but all the kids were like, it's so cool your dad shows up to every game. And he would take photos and make doubles of all of them. And he would pass them out to all the other teammates. So like, like what the photos of them too. So he was like just giving all the time. Right, like he didn't teammates. have to give the photos to the teammates, but he did. Like he put in that time. Yeah, he didn't just take them of me, he took them of everyone. He took he took more of me than everyone else, but he would just he just wanted to give to everyone. So it's interesting, though, how you make the parallel between that and you, for instance, in this one case of, of um, the king of whatever, <laughs> the king of China <laughs> yeah, or something. Exactly. Uh, yeah, how you made this video message just on the spur of the moment, what you appreciate about them. And it doesn't feel like a technique. Like it was just something. Just and then they out, responded. Yeah. They were moved and responded. Yeah. And what's and so that there's that parallel like you, you it was probably easy for you because you saw it in a natural way you're, yeah you're, i mean maybe i mean maybe i don't know if that's personality or if that's mirroring i'm literally just bringing connecting the dots now to that moment because i don't know if my brother and sisters do the same thing so maybe it's just like something i connected with my dad seeing it over and over and somehow it's translated 20 years later or 25 years later but uh i've just discovered that we really i always wanted to be seen as a kid because i never felt seen or acknowledged for anything but your dad I, would show up for these exactly games and, even though they loved me and they were there for me i just instilled the story i told myself is no one cares but they cared they showed up they would tuck me into the bed at night they would tell me they loved me they would you know my dad would play catch with me in the backyard after we get done from work he'd take his suit jacket off roll up his sleeves and play with me for 30 minutes till the sun went down so it wasn't like it happened. It was just like the, the experiences, the moments I went in my life. I think I just told myself like no one cares, and I had. Oh, a, but why? I don't like, and and I I understand that that's obviously that that happened. Because I didn't have any I didn't have any friends for a long time, and so it was like okay, your parents are supposed to care, but they were also really disconnected. A lot of the time, they were present in moments, but they. We're trying to make money. They didn't have any money. They're trying to make money. We have four, you know, they had four kids. They had my brother when they were 19. So they were really young getting into working. My dad was going to school and then he was working at the same time. My mom dropped out of school to just be a mom, raise the kids and work at the same time. So it took about 15, 20 years for them to like finally have some like stability financially. So the early years, I didn't have a lot of that presence until like late at night or something. Then when I was a teenager, my dad started making more money and he was always there. So I'd say it was like the first 12 but, years, it wasn't good. And then from 13 to 21, 
was really good. But the pattern had already been established that no one cares. So do you think there's this theory, which I kind of subscribe to, which is that whoever you were at the age of 12, you kind of carry with you, like that's that pivotal moment between childhood and puberty and adulthood. You carry that with you forever. So if you were insecure or, or you looked a certain way or you yeah. had certain difficulties that people didn't understand or acknowledge, you kind of, those carry, no matter what happens later, like you turn into the super athlete, great businessman, whatever, it doesn't matter, like you still have that 12-year-old in you. I, you might be right. I mean, when I was 12, I begged my parents to send me away. Usually kids get sent away for being bad. Mm -hmm. It's like my parents were bad, and I was like, please get me out of this toxic experience. So I went to a, in the summer of seventh grade, I left seventh grade, and two days after summer of seventh grade, I went to this camp, summer camp in the middle of Missouri, and I lived in Ohio. So it was like, uh, I don't know, an eight-hour drive or something. And I went to this camp, and there was a bunch of kids, for the first time I felt like I connected with, 12 years old. I felt like I never connected with kids my age mm -hmm. any time before this. And they were positive, they were inspiring, they were kind, they were loving, they were inviting, they were welcoming, and I always felt like kids would push me away. And all I wanted to do was be seen and acknowledged. And I remember I was just like, I just want to hang out with these kids more, whatever it takes. And it was two weeks at a summer camp. And I was just like really sad when I left. So I went back home on a plane. My parents picked me up and I said, within the first five minutes, I said, I want you to send me to this school that's in St. Louis, Missouri. Because a lot of these kids went to this school in St. Louis, Missouri. It was a Christian school. And this was a Christian camp that we were at. And so a lot of them were a part of this school. And I said, please send me to this school. I don't know why, but I was just knew I needed to get out of my hometown. I knew I needed to get away from like family stuff. I just wanted to start fresh. And they were like, there's no way we're sending you away. You're staying here with us. Like we don't want to send you away. Hmm. And so it was very weird because I was asking them, begging them to send me away when typically kids get sent away when they're bad and they don't want to leave. You have a sister four years older today. Yeah. Did she ever want to go away? She got sent away. She got sent away to Brazil for a summer because she was acting really bad. Really? Yes. What was she doing in Brazil? We had an exchange student. My dad wanted 10 kids and my mom went crazy after me. So she had her tubes tied and was like, I'm not having any more kids. And the story that I heard later from my mom was that my dad was crying for months after she got her tubes tied because he wanted to have 10 kids. He loved kids. Mm. And so his solution to that, when I was five, we had our first exchange student live with us for six months. You know, from Rotary Exchange Student Program, they would come, right? So we had, every year, there was someone that would come from another country for six months. So I remember the first student was a, you know, a senior exchange student from Brazil. His name was Engels. And he came in, he barely knew English, and he had the room right next to me. He had this big Brazilian flag, he had, uh, Ronaldo or Pele jersey. He had like his food he would make. He had his music playing. And I was just like so curious about this Brazilian older brother figure that was, you know, right next to me in my house. He taught me soccer. He taught me all these different things. And we had different exchanges from Brazil to France to Germany to Philippines. Japan. It was just people from all over the world that would live with us. So they really like kids. They had you, and then yeah. And then he was like, these... okay, if I can't have actual kids, I'm gonna bring kids in. 
And so he just wanted to have like a big family experience. Um, and I'm, I became immersed in being kind of like a, a global citizen, but never leaving Ohio. So it was a really cool experience to learn about culture and language and religions and different people's perspectives without having to leave. And I think at an early age, I just learned to love people and all types of people. And I never was really had like this feeling of better than or less than or racism or sexism. I think I just learned at an early age, like, oh, I just love all people. I like black, white, Asian. It doesn't matter. I'm just like, oh, they're just a, like a brother, a sister because they lived with me. So I just always felt like I could connect with people around the world. And but it didn't then, matter. But then there was this period where, so your sister got sent so away. So my sister got sent away to Brazil because she started acting up. She started acting up when she was a teenager. I remember when I was 10, she had, she was 14, I guess. I was 10. In the summer, our parents were working all day and we were just like at the house by ourselves, right? And my sister was 14, I was 10. And she was kind of, I guess, like babysitting, but it was like free for all. And she would have all these guys over. <laughs> In the summer, every that day. That might have been an education for you. It was crazy. All these guys would be like seven to ten guys. And we were the only white people. And she'd bring all these guys over, and a lot of them were drinking, smoking weed. And I remember this, this crazy story is coming up now. I remember one time, they did some crazy stuff. They had me and some other young kid who was like 10 years old as well, get in a, this is crazy. They had us get in a circle in the middle of our living room. They moved everything around, and they had us fight each other. <laughs> me and another kid fist fight each other at like nine, ten years old. Uh, That's so many things coming up. Who, who won? I don't remember, to be honest. It was just like all very traumatic and uh -huh. scary because it was like these 15, 16 year old kids didn't feel like you're in a escape. circle that were like pressuring, like pushing us in the middle of a circle, like fight. Mm -hmm. So it was just really weird. And both of us kids, and it was like a little black kid, and I'm like a little white kid. And it was just like weird. We we're like, we barely knew each other, and they're telling us to fight and beat each other up. So it was just a weird experience and they were smoking weed all the time and just all this stuff. And so I just remember, for whatever reason, they sent her away like that next summer or something. Like she kept doing stuff, acting out. They sent her away and, um, and my brother at that time was in prison. He was in prison. I from, didn't know that. Yeah, what? my brother went to prison when I was eight years old until I was 12, he was in prison. For what? For selling drugs to an undercover cop. So he sold two sheets of LSD to an undercover cop and got sentenced six to 25 years because in the 90s, the war against drugs in yeah. Ohio was a big thing. They were just like, anyone doing drugs were, were making a statement. That's so horrible, particularly since now, we've just seen um, states are starting to decriminalize Everyone, LSD, yeah, for exactly, instance. Exactly, marijuana LSD. So, so from eight to 12, I went to a two and a half hour drive every weekend to go visit my brother in a, in a prison in a prison visiting room. I guess it's like visiting hours, a couple hours on a weekend you could go to. So we would drive two and a half hours to this prison. I would see my brother sitting there in a blue like jumpsuit, prison jumpsuit. And we would sit in a little circle of chairs and then I would walk around and just see all these convicts, you know? And I'd be like, what did that guy do? And what did that guy do? And he'd be like, yeah, that guy murdered someone, that guy raped someone. And I'm like, but you're not a murderer and a rapist, why are you here? It just didn't make sense to me. Mm. And he was like a hero of mine, my older brother, right? He's 11 years older than me. Like well, the, the day he was caught, like 
everything must have turned upside down for your family. It's crazy. Well, I remember, again, I was seven, I guess, seven and a half when like he got caught and then there was like a whole court process and he was, you know, my parents had to go to the courts for a while. And so it was just like, I didn't really know what was happening. I just knew like he got in trouble. Did other they kids? weren't telling me much, right? They don't, they don't tell you yeah. much when you're seven. Like, oh, your brother was doing drugs. They were just like, your brother's in trouble. We have to go, you know. So it was a weird thing. And my sister, and I've never felt like anyone told me anything. Mm. I was always out of the loop because I was the youngest and they wanted to either protect me or they didn't think I could handle it, whatever. So we would go there, yeah, for four years. We would go and visit every weekend. And he would call on Wednesdays because that's when he was able to use the phone. And he, he would talk to all of us for like a few minutes and say hi. And we'd go visit. And I would just hear stories about what it was like living in prison. And then I would meet his friends in prison. And he was a part of a special program. Um, for whatever reason, this one prison. So he got transferred after a couple of years to this other prison in Ohio. Because this one prison had a special program for talented musicians. They had a prison band. So he was one of the top classically trained violinists under 18 in, mm. in the nation growing up. He was a savant, a genius. He skipped a few grades in, in elementary school and was a top classical violinist. So they put him in this other prison where he could play because they needed more uh, musicians. And he was the only white guy in the band. And they taught him jazz, blues, hip hop, R&B, funk, all these different genres of music and once every couple of months, they actually performed outside of the prison. So we could go to this park ground and the prison band would go outside. It's almost like they were free for a night. And I would get to watch my brother be free, but then have to go back behind bars mm. the next day. And so it was just a weird... And all this is leading up to... This is until I was 12. <laughs> and then my brother got out of prison, I was 12. And I remember the moment he got out, I was in seventh grade basketball season and so i had a practice the time my brother was getting out and it, maybe it was a game it was either practice or a game because i was like i've got to be somewhere so my, all my my two sisters and my parents went to go pick him up and i remember my dad had a 19 like 88 oldsmobile or something like that or hmm. bonneville or oldsmobile one of those things and he had a phone car like in the middle console and I get done with practice, I go back, I'm by myself at the house, small town in Delaware, Ohio, and I get a phone call from, you know, on the landline, I pick it up, and it's my brother calling, he goes, order a pepperoni pizza, I'm coming home. Hmm. So they had picked him up and they called me, and so I'm like, sweet, I'm calling Pizza Hut, I'm like, let's get some pizzas, and um, yeah, he got out, and it was, a, it was probably one of the, like, the best days of my life to see like my hero, my brother, come back and be a free man. And so why then, that after that next summer, you wanted to just go to school eight miles, away, eight hours away? Yeah, I think it was just, just because he got out didn't mean it like solved everything between mm -hmm. our parents and I think there was a lot of guilt and shame and... Were they, did the other kids my know? My sisters were now going off to college, my older sister was in college and my other sister was a senior in high school. They didn't hang out with me. You know, I was like the rug mm -hmm. rat that just wanted to be around them and annoyed them because I was lonely, I was and, bored. And so now for the first time in that summer camp, you had this kind of validation. Yes. And so now fast forwarding to like, for instance, this video you sent to this this guy, do you think, you know, it, it, do you think there's like a desire to please so that you could get validated back? 
like the, and that you never quite pleased your, your the parents. I'm not trying to be overly like sure, therapy, sure. but do you, th you think you never quite pleased your parents enough that they would validate you back because they were always busy dealing with yeah. uh, brothers in prison, yeah, sisters, sisters acting, acting up. up. Yeah. Uh, who's helping me? I don't have friends, you know. But finally, there you connected with this group, and but now fast forwarding later, you're able to send these messages out like, oh, I'm gonna please this one. I can send a video message and then get that validation back that I. That, and I wonder if 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 you feel now ever like you have to overly validate in order to get what you want back, like in your relationships now. Yeah, there might be some moments where I feel like I need to please to make sure to like ease the stress or the the you know the upset or the frustration that might be happening in a moment. Um, but I've worked. A, I used to be way worse, probably in my early twenties, where it was like I always needed to please people. And I've learned that I can't please everyone and I need to have boundaries as well because boundaries create healthy, healthier emotions for me. Like what's an example where you actually created boundaries where maybe previously you wouldn't? I think I just like in previous relationships, intimate relationships, I would just, if any girl was ever mad at me, I would just be like, okay, what do I need to do to fix it? And how do I make it better? And how do I make you happy? And how do I make you love me better? Mm -hmm. So it was always like needing to do something in reaction to them being upset and then I'd feel like I'm exhausted, you know? I can't be myself, I'm on eggshells. So I take full responsibility for my reactions to that, as opposed to just being like, okay with the upset, okay with the frustration, okay with the hurt or the miscommunication and not, oh, what can I do to like make it better right now? And, but in business though, it's kind of harder to, because there's money involved, like if, yeah. if, someone, if you're in a business relationship with somebody or if you're trying to do some sort of transaction, it's a little harder to know because you don't really know them in that way. It's a little harder to know what what you have to do to get the validation back that yeah. you had wanted all this time. I think my biggest trigger, and it still comes up for me, like a week ago, I reacted on a text. Whenever someone, whenever I feel like I'm being abused because I'm such a giver, mm -hmm. and if I feel like someone's abusing me and it's unfair, I talked about this on your podcast, being sexually abused when I was five as well. Um, if I have not in a clear mind, if I've not gone through my routines and worked out and <clears throat> slept well and meditated well, I'm quick to react and try to defend myself. Mm. <clears throat> Especially in business, when when I feel like someone's stealing my money, it's like, you know, the, the anger wants to come out and be like, don't mess with my money. And I think that, that might be a trigger from like being poor growing up and then being broke on my sister's couch and just the fear of going broke again, kind of like how you were like, I never want to go broke again. So yeah. obsess over the 15 million or whatever in your bank account. But the uh, the emotional triggers are something that I've really worked on over the last seven years. Once I started opening up about being sexually abused, it set me free and allowed me to be aware of my triggers. But I'm wondering though, like, the positive side of kind of like, weirdly the positive side of like wanting to please so yes. then you could finally get the attention right. of the parents or this new set of friends or whatever. I think the positive side of that is that you're the first one to think, oh, I should send a video message yeah. to this, uh, the, the, the queen of Scotland or whatever. <laughs> like right, right. Uh, how much you appreciate them and they're surprised by that. But yeah. like it's it's given you what your, your uh, fellow coworkers said yeah, it was like your superpower of being sure. able to reach out and connect. Again, I think if I would have been felt seen and heard in the moments when I was younger and someone just sat with me and looked at me and just listened to me, mm -hmm. it's like I felt the most love and appreciation and belonging. And I think Brene Brown talks about 
You know, we all just want to feel like we belong. And I, I just say to like, the reason I do the show and the books and the events, it's like, I wanna, I wanna create the thing I wish I had. So I'm always asking like, what would I want today? You know, I'd want someone to send something nice. You know, it's like we send nice things on our birth, on people's birthdays and when they die, we say nice things to them once a year and when they die. But what if we were creating a conversation and an environment of acknowledgement, gratitude, appreciation every day for people? And I'm not saying, I've got a lot of relationships and so do you, so it's not like you're gonna send a message to me every day or something. But I just try to, in my mind, think about, and I don't have an app or a spreadsheet or anything like that, I just try to think about like, who am I seeing who's doing something right now? Who have I not seen in a while? Who can I reach out to today who I haven't talked to in a while? And I just try to send one or two messages a day. And that's that's really it. And it takes time. It takes energy. It takes effort. It's there's nothing you can really hack about it. It's a, and it's being yeah. ingenuine if you like hacked something and it, it's like it's me sending a video that took 30 seconds. It takes time and thinking about it, sending it, writing a text, following up. These are minutes of your day that add up. The more you do it, the more time adds up from something else you can be productive on. But relationships, for me, are the key to everything. It's like, if you can't be in relationship with someone, you can't make your dreams come true. You can't bring a vision to life. You can't launch a business. You can't, you need to be enrolling people in who you are all the time to bring your dreams to life, to bring greatness to life. And think about it, your first business really was when you were doing those networking events. LinkedIn, connecting yeah. with people. Yeah, and getting them to connect with each other. So like, you weren't and just connecting to people. Yeah. You were, it's, it's like, if you just, if it's just the list of people you connect to, that's just a linear list. But when you connect all of them up, then it's exponential, the number that's of it. arrows between people. Yeah, and what they build on their own, and they'll always come back and think of you as the champion of that connection. Yeah. So I try to be the champion of people's networks. And then it was it's this, this whole thing, when you have kind of this exponential list of pairs, all these people you're connecting up, and you figure out how to charge essentially $1 per pair, right. it starts to add up. Starts to add up. And that was, that's kind of the launch of your business. You started charging door charges that's or it. table charges for that's these it. events. And and again, though, I, I find the, your, the need for connection, which is, which is very sincere. It's because I, I didn't have any. Yeah, and I feel like for me, it would be like overly tactical. Like I don't really mm -hmm. do that. And, and, but maybe it would be pleasurable for me to do that. I don't know. I'd have to, I'll have to try it. I think it. you should try to, I mean, you're really great at the challenges and experiments. I think this should be a challenge you do. You don't like to be on your phone or text. Yeah. I think it's like for 30 days, I'm gonna text three people a day and say something nice about them and see what opens up after 30 days for you. I think yeah, like would, what, what, what you appreciate about them. What I appreciate about you, just say three people a day, say three things you appreciate them or something you acknowledge about them that they do well, it will change your life. It's funny because that's, that's sort of your exponentially compounding muscle that you know, pays dividends in your life. Yeah, it does, and I'm telling you, it takes time and energy. A friend of mine did this for three years on Facebook, he did a TED talk about it. I'm forgetting the name of it, but my friend Mark Shapiro did it for I think three years. Every day he would go on Facebook and he would send a 30 second message to anyone who he was friends with that had a birthday that day. Mm. So he would do this a few times a day, every day for a few years. And he was said he was blown away by the amount of responses he'd get in return. 
the amount of opportunities that would come from that, the connections, the people that introduced e- Even though they were already getting overwhelmed on their birthdays. Getting, but people weren't sending video messages. Right, they were so just like liking it. or happy birthday. Exactly, and I think, I think there's a limit on Facebook, it's either 30 seconds or 60 seconds in terms of a video message, something like that, maybe it's different now. But it was a limit to how long you could send a message. So he would just do it on Facebook Messenger video. And sometimes it's two people a day, sometimes it's seven people, depending on the birthday. And people will always remember that one more than the thousands of happy birthday, happy BD. You know, it's like. That's so funny. The personal touch of just a little thing. It's not, you didn't have to send a card or a gift. It's just sending a message with your face connects people more. So that's the thing I've done really well. I just go out of the way to try to show people I see them and I appreciate them for the gift they are because that's what I wanted and never got. And that's what I know everyone wants. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, If you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. If you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And, you know, thankfully... ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important and I I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. 
Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. You know, it's so funny because uh, just as a uh, tangent, what Mark, what your friend Mark Shapiro does, I do the exact opposite. So when it's some, <laughs> when I see a list of birthdays, I usually unfollow about half of them. I know that too. I do too on my personal Facebook page. But um, here's the thing. The reason I think I do this is because I was never smart. I was never smart like someone like you who could like think and like build this uh, software system and these programs. And like, I didn't have those skills. I wasn't good in school. I wasn't a good reader. I wasn't a good communicator. But all of these things really are defenses, like mine too. Yes. I didn't have you couldn't, social skills. Exactly. So, so you learned to like, into this. Exactly. So for me, it was just like, okay, I'm not good at anything else. I need to learn something that I can be good at where people will actually allow me to belong in a group that I can have like one friend. I don't remember having friends until I was 13. Like, I remember, I think I might have told you this story the one time. It was probably six or seven years old. I didn't have any friends, and I would always walk around in the neighborhoods, like trying to find, you know, a little dodgeball game or a kickball game or baseball, whatever. I just tried to find people to like play frisbee with or something. And I remember there was these two kids that I wanted to hang out with. They were like cool kids in the neighborhood, and they they said we have a club that we're a part of, and it's an exclusive club, and there's only two ways you can join. You can either pay money, and this is like seven years old. You can either pay money to be in our club, mm-hmm. or you can, um, we'll give you a test, and you have to answer some questions. And I was like, well, I don't have any money, so what's the question? And they asked me a question. Um, it was like two or three questions. They asked me the questions. I don't, one of them was like, name someone who's walked on the moon. And I was like, I'm, I'm seven. I don't even know. I still don't even know the answer to that. But I was like, I don't know. And then another que- there's another question. I can't remember it. And they're like, okay, well, you can't join the club unless you pay us. And so I walked home to my mom and I said, Mom, I need, I think it was $5. And I, that was a lot of money at like seven mm-hmm. years old. And I said, I need $5 to join this club. And my mom like, got all the change out of her purse. I remember she didn't have much money. She got all the change out of her purse, put it in a shoebox for me to take it. And I went back and I handed these kids this shoebox. And I remember just feeling so... Like, they didn't even hang out with me. We were, like, in the basement. They were just, like, taking the money and, like, talking. And I was, like, alone. Hmm. And I remember walking home later just being, like, if this is how I'm going to get friends, this sucks. So I was just alone all the time, like, playing by myself, playing basketball alone, just trying to figure out how to pass the time without feeling miserable, lonely, and, like, no one cares. So it's, it's kind of funny that the business you created was basically you created friends for yourself and a be- and you cre- recreated that ba- that club basement by having these LinkedIn, you know, um, events, parties yeah. and events yeah. that, and your business was basically monetizing, you know, 
your ability to create friends for yourself. Yeah. And, 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 and kind of you had that ability because you had to overcompensate from earlier. Exactly. And I think it was always like, the more value I can add to people, the more money I can help make them, the more I can help connect them to something that's missing for them. So those LinkedIn events were really powerful because I would ask each person when they would come in the door, I'd say, nice to meet you, what's your name, where do you work, and what's the biggest problem you have right now in your business? And then they would say like, I'm struggling in sales, I need, I need to find a salesperson, we need a graphic designer, we need this, um, I don't know, marketing person, we need whatever. And then every person that would come to the door, they would tell me what they need, and they would tell me what they're good at, their business. And I would say, you need to go talk to Mark, you need to go talk to Sarah. And you find that actually help them, people? I would walk them over and I would say, you're really good at this, and you need someone just like this person, and you need this person, talk. And they'd be talking for hours at this event. And they would all come to me at the end of the event, they're like, wow, thank you for making this introduction, like we're gonna do business, they're gonna, I hired this person. So I just became the connector of people's problems to solutions. And I was like, how much value can I add? How much value can I add to everyone? So it wasn't necessarily like, how can I make someone a friend of mine? It's just how can I solve people's problems and add value? And that gave me a lot of fulfillment to be of service. And I just learned how to reinvent that in different, I guess, business models and artistic expressions over the last 10, 12 years. And I feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like it's been a pretty smooth arc upwards in terms of the business side. Like, you know, you went from that to kind of coaching people to do that, to kind of coaching people to coach people to do that. Yeah, I, don't, yeah, yeah. I don't even know actually, what's, What's the way, I mean, you make, you make a good amount of money, you have a growing business, it's been growing for these 10 to 12 years. What is the main part of your business now that's come out of that? Over the last year, we made a decision to reinvent even more. So I think 10 years ago, it was like, get out of survival mode, get off my sister's couch, did some LinkedIn events, did some coaching, then I started selling, started selling courses, creating books, then I started doing webinars, then I started creating other courses, well, what was the web? What was the first webinar? Webinar was teaching LinkedIn, mm -hmm. and I sold a course on LinkedIn, a video training course. Then people would come to me and say, <clears throat> and, "And can I ask, like, how many? Uh, just in the details, like, roughly, how many of those? What did you? What did that course cost? So, how would you market it?" First course was one hundred and fifty bucks, and I made sixty-two hundred dollars in the first time I did a webinar in the summer of two thousand nine. And this is when I was paying $250 a month living at my brother's mm. place because my sister kicked me out. Mm. My brother wouldn't let me live for free, so I had to pay $250 a month for a room. And I did my first webinar in the summer of 2009, <clears throat> and I had no clue what I was doing, my first presentation. And I, at the end of the webinar, I taught LinkedIn. I just taught a bunch of strategies that I knew on LinkedIn. At the end of the webinar, I was like, hey guys, if you like this, here's a PayPal link. Um, I don't have anything right now, but if you want more advanced training on this, I'm gonna give you an incredible training that's like 10 times better than this. Here's the PayPal link, go type it in. And I remember closing down the webinar and opening up my email and just seeing the whole email say, you've got payment or you've received payment from PayPal. Mm -hmm. The whole screen. And I was like, I am the richest man in the world. And I opened up PayPal and it said $6,200 in the account and I just started freaking out. I was just like, if I can do this in an hour and make $6,200, I would do this every week for the rest of my life. And for the next three or four years, I did a webinar pretty much every week, sometimes two, three, four times a week. And I just became obsessed with learning, okay, I need to become better at webinars. If I can make this much money on a webinar, what if I got better at doing them? I need to learn how to build an email list to get people to come onto the webinar. 
I need to meet other people who have big email lists to get them to promote the webinar. I need to create this course and make it great. And then people started, at, so I did that for a few years and just taught LinkedIn over and over again. But each thing was like a more opportunities for money. So, so, so you're adding to your distribution. Exactly. Now once you, like by, by associating with other people with big email lists, yep. now you added a course, there's more things yep. to sell into that distribution. So now you had, you I started had speaking on state, people are like, can you come speak at our event and charging there? And then I was like, people started asking me for other platforms. They're like, can you teach me how to do this on Facebook? Can you teach me how to do this on Twitter, YouTube, email marketing? So I just started learning everything because people had a pain point and I wanted to give them the solution to their pain. And then I started finding experts. I started publishing. I published other experts uh, and created courses for them. And I would own the courses. Like what's an example of course? I created a YouTube course with a guy named James Wedmore like eight years ago. I feel like I know, uh, I know him somewhere. Yeah, he's a podcaster and a new marketer. And then there's a girl named Amy Porterfield who created oh, yeah. a Facebook her. course. It was her first course and made millions of dollars in sales with that. This is back in... So you're using your list now. You help them create the course. And then you're using your list. Their and expertise. And, and your ability to recommend them because your, your people, your email has trusted you. And I was selling them over and over. So I was going on the webinars and interviewing them essentially and then pitching and closing at the end. So they would teach and I would pitch and sell. So I think there's this interesting thing of like, it's like an onion. You had that mm -hmm. core middle and then there's like layers and layers and layers. Like, okay, first connect with web on LinkedIn. You did it yourself by hand. Then it's like showing people how to make yeah. use of LinkedIn. Then it's like, okay, we're gonna make a, a webinar and then a course and we're gonna expand our reach with other email lists. And now that you have this expanded reach, here's another layer is let's do Facebook course, YouTube course. Yeah. And you scaled it by not just using yourself to create all the courses, you use other people. Mm -hmm. And so, okay, that sounds great. Like what kept going, what, what happened? So then what happened was I got to a point in that business after a few years, I had a business partner that I was parting with from the very beginning because I didn't know how to set up a web page. I needed someone like you, right? Early on, I just knew the information, I knew the content, but I didn't know how to do the back end, the logistics, the shopping cart, like none of that. It scared the crap out of me. And I met a guy in Columbus, Ohio that did know how to do it. He'd done like an ebook before and so he knew some basic stuff. So he and I partnered on it. He would help with all the back end stuff, logistics, everything. I would just work on selling and marketing and building relationships. After many years, I got to be very resentful and triggered. Mm. I felt very taken advantage of. This is my own personal experience. But I felt like my ego probably got in the way because I was like, I'm the one making all the money. I'm doing all the selling. I'm doing all the relationship building. I'm up here promoting this thing all the time to do the selling. And I felt like he was working a lot less just like connecting some things on a website that we were just repeating over and over. Were you like 50-50? 50-50, yeah. How could you, like obviously, you know, I didn't know how to make mistakes. Yeah, I didn't know how to communicate to be like, hey man, I need to like make more mm -hmm. because I'm doing all the selling. And I, I remember him saying like, no, like we're 50-50, like you couldn't do this without me. And I go, okay, this was like right before a webinar. Because mm -hmm. I was like, okay, I'm not gonna speak this whole webinar, you go ahead and do it. And he, he did the whole webinar himself and guess how much money we made. Um, Zero dollars. And he never said anything because, again about it. And why that. is it? Because there's, there's, uh, what do you think was the magic? Well, I think, I think he wasn't, that wasn't his skill set. You know, he wasn't a sales guy. He was mm -hmm. like a back end guy, right? And so I'm, that was kind of like the downfall of our relationship. But like when you, so obviously you were an expert because you would have made millions instead of zero. Mm -hmm. So what were you seeing him do poorly 
Did you're like, oh God, he's not gonna sell anything. How, what, what was the nuance? So, that, I, think that, was, I mean, I think it was a skill. It was also like I was up till 2, 3 a.m. every night working and he had kids and he would go home at like five o'clock. So it was like resentment that I was like, I'm getting my whole life into this where you're rewarding from my efforts and just going home and like being a dad and a husband, which I get, but then I don't need to be working as hard. But I was focused. But like, what did he miss in that one particular webinar where he sold zero? I think he, what would you have done differently? Well, he just didn't have the confidence. He didn't, he didn't connect with the audience. He didn't, he didn't know how to sell at the end. Mm -hmm. And I think it was just, he was really scattered. Mm -hmm. So there wasn't a flow, there wasn't a process. And he had been, he had heard the webinar over and over, you know, hundreds of times. So it's not like he didn't know the information. But is it, it's important, the, the difference between doing and watching. Like you've done it, so yeah. you knew all the nuances exactly. of how to connect to the audience or if the audience does this, he what was, you need to do. He was on all the webinars as well with me before, but I was just like, okay, you do the whole webinar, but I would always do the close. Mm -hmm. I would always do the intro, the close, and he would come on and teach a little bit. Mm -hmm. So I'd go, if you think you can teach and sell, like you try it, and he couldn't do it. Wouldn't get any sales. And he just never talked about it again. And I was kind of like, see, you know, I told you so type of thing. Um, and that was kind of the downfall. We, I was just like, you know what? I'd, I saved all my money. I didn't spend a dime. I didn't have a car. I didn't have TV. I just worked until 2, 3 a.m. every night for a couple of years. And I just saved everything because I didn't want to go back to living on my sister's couch. And so I was like, screw it. I'm not going to work. You know, you do this thing, you run the business. I just kind of took like a few months off, three to six months off, mm. and we stopped making money. It was like less and less money coming in. And he wanted me to work harder. I was like, no, I'm good. Like, you didn't work hard for a few years. You know, after five, you would stop. Like, I'm just not gonna work. What well, kind of shows actually how, yes, it's <clears throat> important to have the email list, yes, it's important to have the content, but you, there's still this kind of like human touch, this yeah. connection you have to be able to have with the audience, understand their needs, understand what their agenda is, why they want to succeed. Yeah, you gotta connect with people. And I remember, so that eventually ended, and I actually, we got in some arguments, we almost got in a fist fight in the documentary, I was like, we almost got yeah, a fist fight in the middle of Times Square, and I was just like, I'm done. And I think I was, I don't know, probably 28 at the time, or something like that, 27, 28, 29, somewhere around there. And I wasn't emotionally involved until I really at 30, I'd still, I'm still learning how to be more emotionally involved, but I think I learned about my emotions at 30 years old when I started to open up about my past and my traumas and things like yeah. that. So I was just like, no, you're wrong, I'm right. I was just like in a fighting mode whenever I felt triggered. And for some miracle, I got to a place where I was like, let's have a meeting, let's sit down. It was after this like workshop I did. And I sat down with him, and I didn't talk to him for probably a year. And I just resented him. I sat down with him, and I said, right away when we sat down, I said, I just want to tell you how much I appreciate you and how much I'm grateful for everything that we've done together. Mm -hmm. And it was like almost like he was in shock because he thought I was coming to beat him up, essentially, mm -hmm. and like start some conflict. But I was just like, I'm going to be so calm and tell him how much I appreciate him, even if I don't agree with it. I'm just going to tell him I appreciate him. And that conversation then helped me to sell the company for seven figures to him. Hmm. And without to doing him. that, to him. And how did, he, how did he afford to buy it? Well, he never paid me. That's, that's another story. But he, he was, and I didn't know what I was doing, but we, we did a buyout over many years, and he paid me for a few months, but then he put the company into the trash and hmm. 
didn't do what I told him to do. He did the opposite and the company just went away. So all this effort of building this massive email list, all this content, these courses, gone a few months later. And um, stopped responding to me when I was like, you owe me this money and you know, just kept making excuses. So I said to myself, luckily I've saved a lot of the money. I don't need to work right now, but if I could do anything, what would I do next? How can I reinvent myself? And that's when I just said, I love connecting with people. I love asking questions. I love learning from smart people. I hear about this podcasting thing happening. Um, maybe I'll try this thing. And um, I never knew. my own school. So it's funny. So I never knew that's kind of like the origin of you doing a podcast. Since from age 12 on, you know, it was just more about you really wanted to connect. Like a podcast was a way now to just virtually go out it, to man. the entire world and make friends. And also it's great because you get to call people up and say, hey, come over to my apartment so I can talk to you. <laughs> yeah, and, I had Mike Tyson hanging out at my place, you know, Dennis Rodman, Jay Baldwin, like all these big leaders in the world coming to my apartment until a week ago. Now we're in the studio, so. And then, okay, so now what, what's the business? So it's, it's more than just the podcast. Like you just, I just saw this, this movie, your documentary that you made, Chasing Greatness. The business is media. So it used to be all courses and now it's more media. So I, I was in a course business and now we've just transitioned. I was in courses and coaching and masterminds. That's what it was for before the last couple of years. And then I realized that the podcast was just trying to sell courses and masterminds and coaching and events. It was the tool to promote my stuff. But what I realized is that I wasn't actually putting a ton of effort in the podcast, but it was the thing that was growing the fastest with the mm -hmm. least amount of effort. And I was trying to put all my time and energy over to the courses and the programs and the coaching, but I wasn't reaching the masses. And my whole mission has been to reach 100 million people a week to help them live a better life. But there was a disconnect from the money side to the mission side. So I said, okay, it's really scary, but one year at a time, I'm gonna remove these things that I don't wanna do anymore that are making lots of money, but aren't helping the mission that I truly have for the School of Greatness. What, why were they against each other? Like, why was selling the courses? I think also it's like, who am I in the world? Am I a course creator? Or am I a host facilitator and a curator of hearts? Hmm. You know, is Oprah and Ellen creating courses? If that's like a similar type of model that I could potentially look at, like they're not running masterminds and creating online courses. Well, I guess Oprah is now a little bit, but you know, it's like they didn't do that to get to where they were. And The Rock isn't creating courses. You know, it's like they're doing things at a different level. And I've always been thinking about in the last 10 years is how do I break into the mainstream more? And in order to break the mainstream, you have to do things that are different than everyone in your industry. And so I've just always been trying to elevate the way, you know, I was talking about before, it's like I built this studio to create a different experience, like a wow factor when you walk in and a celebrity or someone that would want to come here would bring a different element to what we've created. The documentary was to create an experience that's different than a lot of people in my industry that just continues to break through more mainstream of the model I'm trying to create which is a media model to reach 100 million people a week. So, so like now, with focusing on growing so we the podcast. From, we got away from the courses, we got away from the masterminds, the coaching, and we only have one thing online, a membership site still, um, but we're going all in on podcast media and advertising there, all in. I just turned on last month, a month and a half ago, YouTube ads, 
to, to just maximize media uh, that way. Was I just gave it away for free with no ads for four mm. years. And in the first month, I saw how much money came in, and I just wanted to throw up. Because I realized how much money we could have made in the last mm. four or five years with all that content. But I was just always like, I just want to help people. I just want to give it away for free. I don't want it to be ads in front of my stuff. And now I'm flipping it around a little bit. So it's going all in on media, bigger production content to try to break through to larger audiences. Mm. And it's... You're obviously it's growing. I don't know too many people actually in, I mean, I know people all the way up from the top 10 to all the way down. Not that many people are growing their podcasts because there's 2 million podcasts out there and growing. So it's great if you could just maintain your yeah. stake on, on the island, but it's hard to actually grow. It's hard to grow. And, and you've been growing. Like, what do you think are the, the, and obviously the quality is good and goes up and the quality of the guests is good and goes up. What do you think are the main um, things that you've, you've been doing that have been increasing the audience? Both both kind of from a conceptual level and a tactical level. I think the first thing is product, making sure that each episode, that I have an intention before I sit in with someone when I'm doing an interview, where I say this is gonna be the best interview of their life. Like that's my intention. And I ask the right connections, or I ask, ask the right questions and I create the right connection with them so that they feel safe and vulnerable enough to open up and share a story like you did for mm -hmm. the first time. True. It's like, what can I get someone to do that they've never done before so that people need to pay attention? Mm. So they want to listen, and it's going to help them in their life, and they're going to want to share it to the world. So if we start with the product being great first, people are going to want to keep listening, and they're going to want to say, yeah, I need to text my friend this because it's going to make me a champion to that person. It's going to make me look interesting to that person. It's going to say, I added value to that person. And hopefully that keeps spreading with a great product. So it starts there. Then it starts with... The next thing is just going all in on it. I think a lot of people do a podcast on the side. It's not the main thing. And that's why I've decided to stop other things and go all in on this this year. I just started a month ago. This is the first week in a new studio. So odd, uh, because that's the decision I made like a month ago was going all in on the podcast. Going all so. in. And, 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 and saying, you know, it's challenging because it's like, okay, well, here's a seven-figure revenue stream that I'm letting go of, and here's this other opportunity and these 30 opportunities, but it's like, if I'm doing all my time and attention on everything else to make money as opposed to the mission, this thing is not going to grow as fast as I want. And who knows how fast it's going to grow this year, but it's like, I need to go all in for myself to see what we can create. And at least know, okay, I went all my time and effort into this for 12 months. Maybe it grew 2%, maybe it grew 30%, 100%, I don't know but I won't know until I go all in. And so it's like putting all the time and attention with a clear strategy, okay, what do I need to do? I need to get on other podcasts three, four, five times a month. I need to be networking like crazy to get the right people on that's gonna get those big spikes. I need to have a moment, like a documentary, where everyone talks about me, and so there's more attention this year, right? And I'll have a big moment at the end of the year with my Summit of Greatness where Thousands of people will be talking so, about So Summit of Greatness is part of it. It's an event you do every year. Annual event. And, you know, people listening to your podcast go. So yeah. I don't know what you charge for that, but almost, is it a moneymaker, the event? It's a, it's a money loser. Yeah, events it's are hard. It's really hard. And it'll be our fifth year, and we've never made money with it. We lose money every year. But we have amazing people come speak. There's thousands of people from around the world, and they're talking about it. And they have an experience that they take home and tell their friends about. So this year we'll have two big moments at least and hopefully another one in some other way. So it's like creating those moments, um, focusing and going all in, and really trying to optimize everything else so the systems are in place so I don't have to spread my time thin on everything else. 
And mm. how did you, like in terms of, like you mentioned you're gonna go on other podcasts, but also you go on other TV shows. Like how yep. did you get on Ellen? That was a big, I remember when that yeah. happened. That was a big That was deal. a moment, it was yeah. a big moment because it was like the first podcaster to go on Ellen. And that was in 2016, 17. It was a few, three years ago, I guess. And that was through relationships. Scooter Braun, mm. you know, was, was really invested in in uh, supporting the podcast, and you and I'm always just connecting dots. I was thinking then, I thought then Scooter Braun, and because also you had Adam Braun on, and you were getting involved in Adam Braun's that's charity, the promise. Yeah. The promise. Which the difference between that's a good difference between you and me is that I had Adam Braun on my podcast the same time you first had him on, but I didn't, you know, then go to the. I, I just like staying in my closet. Like I didn't yeah, yeah. go out and say, oh, I want to get involved in this. And I just didn't do it. It wasn't a I mean, natural my thing girl, for me. My girlfriend's actually, she's been really good for me because in some ways that's helped me, like putting myself out there and building all these relationships. In other ways, it's like taking a lot of energy and spreading me thin. And so she's trying to really help me like reel in. She's like, why are you taking that meeting and taking two hours a day for this? Like I would just take meetings all the time to meet people. And I was like, one day it'll connect the dots. Mm-hmm. But she was like, no, you gotta be, you gotta take care of your own time and take care of your own energy. You're just giving your energy all the time to people, random strangers that wanna meet you in hopes that something happens. Like, you gotta be more strategic. So I think there's a balance. Yeah. Like, you've probably done a great job of not giving everyone your energy where I'm just like, who can I help? Who can I help? No, what's interesting was is that since I've met my current wife, Robin, it's actually freed me up to have many more meetings than I normally would. I have to kind of rein it, I have to now rein it back in because it's, <laughs> saying I, yes to everything. instead of always like kind of being in bad or unhealthy relationships, now I, I have this healthy, healthy base mm-hmm. that I can do what I've never done before, which is actually go out and meet people, something I was uncomfortable with, particularly when I had bad things going on in my life. And so now it became, I didn't know what to do. It became too much. And so now I'm also reining it back in. It's yeah. hard to, to figure out what meetings to not go to. Yeah. That's more important even than knowing what meetings to go to. So I'm just saying no a lot more. Mm-hmm. I'm saying yes to the one thing and saying no to everything else. And I think that's that that strategy is, you know, we'll see, I'm one month in, so we'll see how it goes. But it feels like, it feels good. So those are the few key things I'm doing. And I'm just being really strategic about the relationships I'm building and who I want on. Um, just you you just signed up with a podcast network. Yeah, by, by the way, this this interview is totally selfish. It's not the best interview you you've ever done. You've, you've had much better uh, interviewers. I'm but, sharing stories I never share. But but I'm getting I'm getting just very good tactical information for me. So, one so of the, that's I, the case. So the reason so I've been seven years independent, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm still independent, but I've partnered with Wondery, their top three podcast network in the world. We just announced this yesterday, and. I said to myself, okay, what I've done has gotten me to where I'm at, but it may not necessarily get me where I want to be as quick. Mm-hmm. And I've done a lot of work on the podcast, 160 million downloads, seven years, you know, 900 plus episodes, but what's the thing that's going to take it double this year? If I had to double it, what would I need to do? I just started asking different questions because I don't want to just be going slow growth. I want to go big, you know, big growth. And I was just like, I need better distribution. I can't just rely on my own social media channels, my own guests sharing it out. I can't just rely on that. That's what I've relied on for seven years. So I need better distribution. I need the right partners who believe in the show, who want to spread it far and wide. And the best way, as you know, to get a bigger audience on podcasts is being on other podcasts because that's where the listenership is. It's typically not trying to find a non-podcast listener to come and listen to something and then stay in that new routine and habit. 
It's finding someone who's already listening to podcasts. So I partnered with Wondery, and we have an aggressive marketing campaign and strategy over the next three to six months within their network. They've got 10 million you know, monthly listeners, and it's like, how can I go on every show? How can I integrate this way? How can you know we support each other? I'm helping them. They're helping me. And it's like, I don't know if it's going to work. It could flop. It could be amazing. But if I don't try and go all in for 12 months, I won't know. So I'm just trying to layer and stack as many strategies as possible to making it grow. And it helps with all the network. Like my guess is you know people at all the places that distribute podcasts as well. So you're able to say, hey, we're doing something new now or we're about to promote this thing that's related to your other content and... You know, that's helpful as well. And you've built that up. That, that's the real asset you've built up over years. That's why you could separate from your business partner with all the email lists. He can't take the list that's in your head. Right, right. exactly. So, so, so I'll ask you a couple of questions that you asked me in your podcast. And, and I'm curious your answer. You have five minutes left to live. <laughs> you have a bunch of kids, which you, you and, and your girlfriend. <laughs> and, I don't have any kids, but okay. You, yes. But let's say you have like five kids yes. and you have five minutes left to send them a message that's about what you want them to remember about you. I'm just stealing your question that way that you asked me on your podcast. I wonder if my question sounds ridiculous when I ask something like this. I never think Did about it. Did I just it. sound ridiculous? No, but I, he's like laughing over here and I'm like, man, I wonder if it's like... No, it's a different style, right? Like, yeah. because, and I'm, I was fascinated because I did, I answered it, uh, I took it okay, as seriously as you asked it. If I had five minutes left to live and I had to share a message with my future kids that aren't here, uh, and that are unborn, what would I say to them? I would say, and you had a great answer. <sighs> it's hard to think of these a- answers for these guys. Uh, I feel like if my kids were like, you know, alive, I would probably know exactly what to say because I would have this crazy, amazing experience with them for years and I would have something different to say. But let me just imagine that they're alive and I have a couple of daughters. I would say that something specifically for them, I would say, um, uh, I just believe that being a positive force for good is always the way to go in any situation. Like responding with a positive light and a positive experience and a positive mood does amazing things in any situation. So like let's let's like let's say you have a daughter, she's 25, she her uh-huh. boyfriend just broke up with her and she just lost her job and she doesn't know what she wants to do and and like how does she she's in these depths. So, so okay, now it's different. So and, and, but, but, but what I would say is this. I would say uh, the greatest joy you'll get is in service to other people. Hmm. If you're ever feeling anxious, stressed, overwhelmed, angry, frustrated, the quickest way to get out of this is being of service to other people, the people you care about, your community, country, humanity. Well, and I'll tie it back to what you said. Giving to other people is the greatest joy and fulfillment when you give. But when you're just like worrying about yourself, what you don't have all the time, you're gonna be suffering. But the quickest way to get out of suffering is to serve. And and, and look, what you first said in the very beginning was, you talked about this message you sent, this video message you sent to this person out of the blue, and you said what you appreciated about him. That was, in its own form, of course, a service Absolutely. and giving. Huge and, service. And he responded back. He was he had never gotten a video message yes. like this. Where is he now? Do you guys 
talk right now? Absolutely, yeah. Got a text message from that person this morning congratulating me on the documentary, supporting me, appreciating me in return. I wasn't expecting it, but it was, it's nice to just have a mutual relationship. You know, again, yeah. the key to success in life is relationships. And the key to successful relationships is showing up, is vulnerability, is appreciation. You know, you've been married how many times now? Uh, third, but the last. I'm very <laughs> the happy The last now. time. And a lot of times from uh, relationships that I see that aren't working, whether you're married or not, is truly a lack of respect, but it's really like appreciation. When someone feels a lack of appreciation, they start to get distant, they start to feel disrespected, they start to feel separate. And appreciation connects us and brings us together. It's such a simple, it's not a strategy, it's just a simple way of living life in a positive way. And again, I was never the person who had the smart answers, I was never the one who could uh, remember the statistics or any of those things, I didn't have those smarts, so I just had to care about people. And when you care about people, it makes them feel good. And when people feel good about you, they typically want to help you. And look, in every direction you've chosen to go, using this philosophy, yeah. you build the seven-figure business, you build the huge podcast, like it's it's worked. Yeah, and it's like, you know... the Not that it was tactical, me, but I, right. I break and for it me, down. You know, not, not saying that the James Alter show is a, a bad name or anything, but for me, I didn't want it to be the Lewis Howes show for a reason because I wanted to shine the spotlight on, on the people who were great. And you do the same thing, you just named it that. But I was just like, I don't want it to be my name, I just want to give to other people. Well, it's interesting because, I, so I agree with your choice of a school of greatness for your show, but I always was thinking like, Oh, I like the David Letterman show. No, I, I love it too. I think it's cool. I think one day I'll probably have the Lewis Howe show. Right? One day it's like the Joe Rogan experience. Like, it's all cool, but I think I was just insecure to have my name front and center. I didn't think I had the confidence. So it was a little bit of insecurity, and it was also like, I want it to be about the guest, and I don't want it to be about me. Just like how I was last night at the documentary, I was like, I don't want it to be about me. I want it to be about the people I've interviewed. But it needs to have someone that everyone can connect back to. Yeah. And so it's not bad that it's your name. I'm just saying for my point. No, no, I agree. And look, you know, the documentary was great. Your podcast is great. We've, we've now we've been on each other's podcasts at least four, four times. Five times yeah. yeah. And look, here's to to many more. And you know, congratulations on making this big leap into doubling down on podcasting more. You too, man. Yeah, I know. And now, but I've got to, I've got to, you're, you always raise the bar higher. So I've got to like climb higher to, to keep on. Because I'm not smart enough like guys like you uh, who are just no, like got no. the strategy and got the hacks and got the freaking smarts. So you, I, I just You can't. got the smarts and you text people back. Here's a video. Here's <laughs> what I appreciate about you. I've never done that in my life. So I'm going to, so I'm going to practice for the next 30 days. I'm going to do that. And I think my listeners text should do that. Text three people a day. I will. And tell them what you appreciate about them or something you saw that you said, hey, just I was, thought that was really cool. Congrats. Yeah. Three people a day. That's a good idea. I'm so going to do it. What is today? It's the 13th? Yeah. So the 13th it's the next Friday? Month. No, it's Thursday the 13th. Yeah. So next month. So I, what are you going to give me if you don't do this? Three people um, a day. Three texts a day. All right. I'll donate um, $1,000 to the um, Nazi Party of the United States. Yeah. <laughs> what about $1,000 to the Pencil Promise, a charity that I... Well, no, I'm going to do that. I'll do that anyway. I don't want to have that as a punishment. Okay. I'll do that okay. anyway. So okay. I'm saying as a punishment, I'll donate to a negative charity. Okay. So like now I have to do it or else I have to like give money How about this punishment? <laughs> For a week, you have to change your show to the School of Greatness. That, that I can't do because that's your name. Then just 
to do it. To oh, say, hi, right. this is Jay's okay. daughter's show, right. and I'll call you at the School of Greatness right. today. Right, so right. I'm, I'm calling at Lewis House, the School of Greatness, exactly. instead of the Jay's So, okay, that's my punishment if I don't do this. Yes. Perfect. Great. Awesome. And Every day, three people a day. Three people a day, okay. well, I, and I say one thing, I appreciate yeah, that. I'm it. even going to make it a video. So, which is- And you're going to send it to them. I'm going to send it to them, yes. Wow. So, all those things. And Video, tell me, and write, it, a, one thing and I write a Facebook post afterwards sharing of your biggest, what opened up for you after doing that. Yeah, and I, I, I'm, I'm curious now too, because that's going to be an experience. It's a great experience. Well, I, again, I don't know if this was the best interview you've ever ha had, but I'm always <laughs> selfish in these podcasts, I and I it. want information for me, which you've certainly provided, so thank you very much. And Lewis, once again, Appreciate it, James. you're always welcome on the podcast, Appreciate and it. I'll see you soon. Thank you, brother. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA.